Hi, and welcome to The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Meara, Democratic pollster with GBAO. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the polls, driving the latest news in politics, tech, and pop culture. So there's a lot of news going on this week, as I'm sure everybody knows. There's been a major news event every single day with lots of overlapping. On top of that, we had the fifth anniversary of us hatching a plot to have a podcast, which we're always excited. That was at the State of the Union when Chris and I were doing uh, coverage for NPR and uh, spoke about it afterwards. In 2015, think about how much the world has changed since then. Yes. <laughs> like, I don't even know if Donald Trump had decided he was running for president yet. It may have still just Five been... years ago, maybe in his head, but not... In not head, but yeah. yeah. Not to the world's knowledge. Right. And so listeners, you'll notice there's a third voice here with us. Oh, sorry. I, I screwed up your whole intro. I'm sorry. No, you did not screw up anything. This is actually perfect. We're glad you're excited because we're also excited. <laughs> you are listening to the Bolsters. Ladies and gentlemen, from the of the thrilled to be joined by Nate Silver, the man, the myth, the legend of 538. Nate, thank you so much for joining us on this very special fifth anniversary plus Iowa plus State of the Union plus what the heck happened to the Seltzer poll plus impeachment edition of <laughs> yeah. the pollster. There is no absence of, uh, of news, guys. <laughs> right. No absence of news, for sure. And so just in, you know, one or two sentences, because we're pretty sure that the Venn diagram of pollsters, listeners, and 538 aficionados, you know, there's tons of overlap. But for that very small sliver of folks who are fans of one of us and not the other, can you just tell us like a little bit briefly one sentence of your origin story and why you are here today? Wow. I'm here, the one sentence version, because I was sick and tired of how the mainstream media covered politics, not being very data-driven, not being very empirical. And so I started having worked on sports analytics before, founded a site called 538 about 11 years ago now, more than that, I'm sorry, almost 12 years ago, to take a more data-driven, polling-oriented perspective on on elections and politics. And uh, it's what I've been doing ever since, pretty much. Right. Well, that's fantastic. Well, speaking of data-driven what are we supposed to make of Iowa? I mean, people talk about the polls being broken, but at some level, if you look at the polls of what happened in advance of Iowa, they are pretty consistent with what actually happened. So how do you look yeah. at the polls versus the results? Obviously, the complication with counting the results is separate as to whether the results align with what the polling showed. So one good thing, I mean, obviously, Democrats may regret now having these three separate counts because it made Iowa very chaotic, right? One good thing, though, is that it makes it a lot easier to judge Iowa polls because Iowa polls judge your first preference when you first come in to the gymnasium 
or the room and line up in a group. It does not account for what happens later on. So Bernie Sanders, it looks like, will have won the majority of first preference votes, which is what many polls showed. He was ahead in the polling averages. Buttigieg, it looks like, will win after after reallocation and state delegates are counted. That's a different measure. But in either event, I'm splitting airs here a little bit. Iowa's a very hard state to poll. These polls were were pretty good. They identified the movement toward Bernie in the final month before the caucus. They identified some polls had Biden ahead, but some showed, including some polls that were spiked, we'll talk about in a moment, but they showed Biden's mediocre performance in Iowa. They were pretty much spot on on Warren and Klobuchar. They were a little low on Buttigieg, although there was one poll that had him ahead. But overall, it's like a, a solid A minus B plus performance by pollsters. If you're getting on a curve because the caucus is hard to pull, it might be a straight A. But this ought to restore a little faith. And even under difficult circumstances, pollsters can do can do pretty good work still in uh, in Iowa, at least. Yeah. I mean, what do you make of the fact that public polling, and this is not just for Iowa, but Iowa, perhaps this is magnified, but it's true nationally. When you look at the Democratic primary polling, it doesn't take into account the different rules that are in each state, whether they're closed primaries. They ask a lot of the national polls ask about, you know, self-identified Democrats and then ask them primary questions. In Iowa, the caucus goers are a smaller percentage. It's not the same as folks who vote in larger primaries. There's a list of past caucus goers, but that's not what public outlets use. I mean, what do you make of all that, like the use of vote history and self-report and how we're supposed to interpret the you know primary polling that's out there? I mean, obviously, one thing that makes primary polling harder is that turnout is lower. And whenever turnout is lower, that makes it harder to predict. It looks like in Iowa, people may actually have guessed a little bit too high on the turnout, where turnout was lower than people expected. We have a number of elections in a row where turnout was very high, like at the midterms, for example. So this was a bit different. But yeah, I mean, look, y'all know more about this than I do, but the way I think about it, there are two basic ways to do a likely voter model. One is to take the voter word at face value, and the other is to to hedge against that by looking at their vote history in some way, shape, or form, or their knowledge of the election. I, as a journalist, tend to want to take things more at face value, right, and have more transparency. So I like I like polls like Ann Seltzer's poll that just, just say, if you say you're going to vote, then we trust that you're going to vote. And it seems like in this election that those polls did better. They tended to show a younger electorate, and the younger electorate is better for Bernie. And Bernie, again, at least at first preference, right, what you should compare the polls against is direct apples to apples comparison. Bernie did well by that metric. And so the polls that had the more open voter screen and made fewer assumptions did a, did a better job than ones that had a, a stricter voting screen that maybe kicked out some, some younger voters. Yeah. So when taking a look at like which poll, quote unquote, got it right, you know, you have a number of polls that all came out in the final days. You know, you had Emerson that had Sanders in the lead, but had him up 13 over Buttigieg, which is obviously very, very bullish for for Sanders. Not really how it went. You had DFP Civics, which had kind of a similar story. But then you also had the unreleased and then later released Des Moines Register and Seltzer poll. I want to talk about that for a second, because when that news broke on Saturday night, I was at a bachelorette party. Margie was at a bar mitzvah. mitzvah. I'm texting her. I'm like, Margie, we have to get to microphones and do an emergency pod. This is like crisis level. And obviously we did not do that. And the situation sort of resolved itself. We ultimately found out what 
happened. I was at a table with like all pollsters where everyone was like. (laughs) (laughs) See, I got called out by the bride because all of a sudden she notices that there's a tweet storm from me and she like looks over at me like, what What happened? (laughs) How did you do that? What did you make of their decision? And, uh, And I don't yet know, was this Ann Seltzer's decision? Was this the media organizations kind of panicking? I praised the decision at first. I thought better to get it right than just put it out and cross your fingers. But what did you make of the decision for them not to release it? And then ultimately to kind of have those results leaked still before the caucus. Well, and we were, I think the first news organization that officially leaked them. I our think poll, so. Yeah, we've got our, Claire Malone's tweet. Uh, reporter here, Claire but... Malone. But look, the, it's newsworthy. So we would have leaked it no matter what, no matter yep. what I think about the decision as a polling firm. So yeah, I was kind of like you, like a little bit surprised. I actually got a tip an hour or so before that the Buttigieg campaign was very perturbed with something about the poll, that they were talking to a lot of people and that and that things were getting a little bit weird. To me, I think the decision to pull the poll was a mistake and was panicked. And I haven't talked to principals involved in this decision. I know I, I'm supposed to talk to some people at CNN at some point. I'm sure they'll disagree with what I have to say here. To me... Human error is a part of any endeavor, period, even endeavors involving numbers. And the alleged thing that happened is that you had one, not volunteer, but one interviewer who had enlarged the font on her screen so that the last name was cut off. However, these names were randomized. So in one case, it was Buttigieg. In another case, it's Tom Steyer. In another case, it's Joe Biden or whatever else. To me, I would guess that you have that degree of human error in many polls, mm-hmm. almost all polls where you're interviewing hundreds of people, you're going to have some interviewer somewhere skip over a name, mispronounce a name, miscode something, you know, read the wrong thing on the screen at the wrong point in time, follow the wrong protocol if a, if a respondent gives an ambiguous or incomplete response. It's part of the part of the non-sampling error that you have in polling. To me, the question is: Is this an error that you can? isolate. It seems to me like a pollster, you guys can tell me otherwise, a pollster like Seltzer very probably would be able to identify, okay, let's eliminate all interviews conducted by this interviewer and or on this screen. Right. Right. Throw those out and publish the new numbers. And instead of a sample of 600, you'll have 483 or whatever, which is still more than adequate. It's a poll that has a pretty large sample for an Iowa poll. I tend to think, and again, I am not the one who did reporting on the story. I, I heard credible gossip about it, but I have not talked to principals here. I tend to think that like, if they had not had this TV special scheduled for the Seltzer poll, and they had not had this rather firm traditional Sunday morning print deadline on Saturday night, that they would have thought about it more and said, this is a fixable issue. Mm -hmm. And we'll publish the poll the next morning. Or you can say, oh, well, we have to re-interview 50 people or conduct 50 new interviews to make up for the ones that we were supposed to get, which might not be a bad thing, by the way, to have an even fresher poll. So I don't know. And the poll wound up being really good. Yeah. <laughs> in more ways than one, it predicted chaos, yeah. and then it also got the result pretty close. 
Yeah, I know that was that was quite a funny thing. Like the fact that there were no immediate results of the Seltzer poll turned out to be on the nose in, in a way people had not anticipated. But yeah, I mean it's true. Sometimes things happen, and you can identify all the interviews done by a specific interviewer. And I just felt I think everybody in the polling industry felt pained at the thought of something as benign and unpredictable as like just enlarging the font. Uh, It's not a thing that you would know to check, you know, if you were doing quality control remotely, right? Yeah, this this is the sort of thing that the reason why I had so much secondhand anxiety over this is because there are so many things that can go wrong with a poll. As as Nate laid out, you know, there are there is certainly human error happening in almost any live interviewer telephone poll that you do because humans are imperfect. But as a pollster, you try to do everything you can to prevent any errors from happening. But something like an interviewer bumping up the font on her Katie station is just like not a thing you can prevent against. And it and for it to be in such a high profile setting is what gave me so much secondhand anxiety. I, I think, Nate, you are right that this was a fixable problem, not fixable on the deadlines that they had set for themselves. And that's kind of why I did support the decision to ultimately pull the poll, not because the poll was not fixable. If I had been doing a poll for a client and we discovered something like this, then you go back in the field for one more night and you replace those interviews and you are transparent to your client about why and you move forward. But in this case, because of all of A, the hoopla around it and the deadlines, and then two, the conspiracy theorizing around it as well. If all of a sudden you roll out a poll and you're like, oh, we had to get rid of a, you know, a chunk of interviews for an unspecified interviewer problem reason. I don't think you put the conspiracies to bed. Now, of course, not releasing the poll unleashed a whole new set of conspiracy theories about, oh, this shows Biden doing poorly. And this is they're trying to suppress the fact that Biden's going to do badly, which Biden did not do well in this poll and did not do great in Iowa. But I ultimately the night of like better to withhold it and get it right than to just roll it out. Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. According to studies, less than 13% of all inventors who hold a U.S. patent are women. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of their white counterparts. But we can fix that by increasing participation in innovation and patenting by underrepresented groups. It would quadruple the number of American inventors and increase annual GDP by almost $1 trillion. Invent Together is a coalition of organizations, companies, universities, and concerned citizens committed to ensuring that everyone has the opportunity to invent and patent. Because the more diverse the American patent system gets, the stronger and more successful our nation will become. What can you do to help diverse inventors patent and unleash economic opportunity? Find out at inventtogether.org. Learn more and take action today. So let's talk a little bit about the models that you have on your site, whether it's impeachment or the primary. I think maybe you've had this. I know that I've seen in a lot of meetings, people use the phrase model to kind of describe (laughs) anything, all kinds of things. Can you talk a little bit about the modeling that you do and what makes something a model versus not a model? And in some of the questions that we, we got on Twitter, people want to know a little bit about Mr. P., who is he? Why is he important? 
to me, a model is a statistical algorithm, or it's one type of model, type of model that I do, which is a bunch of code that takes inputs, takes data, makes certain assumptions about them based on empirical analysis, and then produces results or estimates of the likelihood of certain things or the quantity of certain things or the relationships between certain things. So it's a, it's a simplification that uses statistics basically to try to represent the world, you know? So depending on how complex the thing is that you're trying to predict or trying to forecast will determine kind of how complex your model is potentially. Building a model, for example, of the entire democratic nomination process, which is what we've tried to do is pretty hard because it's a complicated process. We've already seen some of the complicated parts about it. You have multiple candidates, the states go in sequence, the delegate rules can get pretty weird although it's clearer for Democrats than for Republicans. And so, so yeah, we're trying to like actually in a statistical way have a kind of rough approximation of all the complexities in the real world. For folks who do internal polling, there are lots of things that you look at internally, candidate traits and how well-known they are and how we, how well people can convert that notoriety or favorability into votes or whether messages stick or not. And a lot of that stuff is not always in the public polling. And some of the things that we want to know the answer to and try to ask, and you see in public polling, like about electability or who you think can win or who do you think other people would want to vote for, those seem like imperfect measures that it's we're asking people to respond with precision that they may not actually have themselves. Talk to us a little bit about using the model or simply interpreting the public polling in a way that adds some precision to these things that are still amorphous and shifting. So one thing about what we do at 538 is that the focus is very much on on prediction, on predicting the outcome or more properly forecasting, meaning we do it probabilistically because their polls can be wrong. We try to kind of forecast how wrong they might be. But it's different than if you're a campaign and you're asking about how can I persuade voters to switch to my candidate or to turn out. So in some ways, we tend to focus more on the top line numbers or the things that are shown to be predictive, right? One thing you probably early on in the primaries, too late to worry about this now, but early on, you want to adjust for name recognition. That if Pete Buttigieg gets the support of 10% of Iowans, but only 40% of people know who he is, well, 10% of 40% is pretty good. Maybe months later, that translates to actually getting 25% of the vote at the caucus in February. So there are a few things like that that are worth looking at. But like, but in some sense, we're kind of a little bit on the keep it simple side, I think, where we're looking mostly at top line numbers, but trying to, in very detailed ways, figure out when polls are more accurate and when polls are are less accurate. When you're trying to make editorial decisions about when a new poll comes out, this is very much like a devil on one shoulder, angel on the other shoulder thing that I experience is on the one hand, I know no individual poll is worth freaking out over, look at averages, keep calm and carry on. And then I will find myself on a Sunday morning seeing Anthony Salvanto post yeah. the latest CBS News poll. And I'm like, guys, 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 CBS has new numbers. How do you resolve sort of that tension between the need for new content and the excitement over, oh, my gosh, there's a new poll and the knowledge deep down that like, no, no, we should keep calm. We should look at averages. Yeah, I think most people still err on the side of putting too much weight on the newest and shinest data point. There are exceptions like. 
the first, whatever happens in New Hampshire, right? The first polls we get of Nevada and South Carolina and the first national poll we get after New Hampshire will be really valuable to look at. But in general, people, people need to look at all the data and take it with varying degrees of grains of salt and average it together more or less, right? And of course it can get more complicated where we do think that some polls are higher quality and like quite literally deserve more weight. But a lot of times, yeah, like you're saying, I mean, people will want to write headlines and, and we're not about the headlines. We're about the kind of fifth paragraph where there's nuance and complexity in looking at, in looking at polls. And this can lead, I think, sometimes people astray, right? We're like, the headline in the pre-Iowa polls was Bernie surging. And there's truth in that. He did pretty well in Iowa. The subheadline, though, is like, actually, it's a four or five-way pileup in which Bernie is narrowly ahead in some polls, but not in all polls. And by the way, there are three different ways to count the vote. So Bernie could win one metric and lose the other one, right? <laughs> too long. That's the, yeah, that's too long for a headline. It's too long for a tweet even. But like, that's like kind of the, that's the more complete story. And we're our readers, we're trying to give people the more, the more detailed story. So here's a poll question for you. How would you rate the coverage of polling this cycle generally? Is it better than 2016, worse than 2016, the same as 2016, so no better or worse? Or should I put you down for DK slash REF, refuse, don't know, refuse? (laughs) I think it's a little better. I mean, I thought the coverage in 2016 was, I mean, it's a whole long topic, right? right? I thought it was quite bad. I thought it neglected the uncertainty in polling neglected actually kind of a swing back toward Trump at the end. So I think like kind of for better or worse, people overlearn the lessons of 2016 or maybe learn the wrong lessons, but it may be kind of a case of like two wrongs make a right. Whereas like before, like treating polls as gospel, like, Oh, this candidate's leading the poll. They're going to win now. Like having half of that and half of, Oh, polls can never be trusted. Right. Though. I mean, those two extremes, neither of those are good, sentiments right but like at least they kind of sort of balance one another out a little bit and there's like a little bit more skepticism but people still need to be wary of like creating narratives based on certain high profile polls instead of looking at all the polls when they often tell like a noisier and messier story my last question for you is something that has me anxious as we head toward the general election and that is the question of the silent trump voter which was a big The specter that loomed over the 2016 election, Trump advocates said, hey, we've got a silent Trump vote that the polls are missing. And I myself was one of the people that was like, I don't think that's the case. Um, I think that's wish casting. I I don't think that's real. And ultimately, after the 2016 election, a lot of really good like papers people would present at APOR sort of suggested that, no, there was not a silent Trump vote, that there were undecided voters who broke a certain way, et cetera, et cetera. But there was not a hidden Trump vote that to the extent he was undercounted, it was about not waiting for education. But all of which is to say I've just come off the road doing a handful of focus groups of women where there were women who on our paper had identified themselves as Republican, had identified themselves, you know, all of the all of those things. But in the room were very reluctant to even say the word Trump, much less a nice thing about him. And it does have me wondering in a world where things like telephone poll response rates are only 6%, where it's harder and harder to get people to take surveys at all, and where things are so divided and nasty, possibly more so than even four years ago, how much do you worry about the existence of a silent Trump vote or shy Trump voter? 
I'm not a pollster myself. <laughs> so I just have to worry about whether the pollsters are worrying about it. And I think what usually <laughs> happens is that you usually have people making errors in opposite directions, right? Yeah. So an election happens in Trump. The polls were actually not that bad, but they weren't yep. perfect. So what usually happens is that some people will say, oh, my God, it would be so embarrassing to underestimate Trump again. Let's pull all six of these levers that would be reasonable assumptions that would, would have given Trump a better chance. Let's pull all six of these levers because we're not sure what it is. We just want to make really sure that we're not going to underestimate him again. And that winds up overcompensating. And some pollsters say, you know what? We're in it for the long game. This is undecided. It was a Comey letter. By the way, it was in the margin of error. So we're having a track record long term. Don't want to overreact to fight the last war. Let's just chill out, do the same thing. And the combination of the, the overreaction probably produce an appropriate degree of, of correction. I think what you said at first, I mean, I think clearly like waiting for education is important. Mm -hmm. You know, I think having a mix of online polls and live polls is probably pretty good. By the way, in Iowa, there were polls that had Bernie at 30% of the vote and those weren't very good polls, right? You had some that had Bernie yeah. at 15%. And so Iowa, among other things, was like a victory for like poll averaging or aggregation because the averages were a little high on Biden, a little low on Buttigieg, but pretty, pretty good. So I take a different view on this than if I were a pollster myself. But, you know, it depends. I mean, maybe there are some shy, if Bernie's a nominee, maybe there's some shy Bernie voters or something, right? Mm -hmm. Who live in red parts of the country where you don't want to say you're supporting the socialists, but they like him for whatever reason, you know? Mm -hmm. So that can cut, cut both ways, I think. For sure. Yeah, the the Gallup poll that has made the rounds this week that was one of the highest, strongest numbers for Trump. What it was missing from those headlines was that it, there was a four point Republican advantage in party ID, which is you know a little bit more Republican than we typically see. And they made a note of that, but that's not the headline. That's in the article at Gallup, and it led some to that. Plus, some other things led some to wonder if impeachment has changed response rates in such a way similar to what some observed during the Kavanaugh hearing, that it's changed response rates where Republicans are more enthusiastic about taking surveys in a way that makes perhaps a false sense that there's a Republican surge or a pro-Trump surge. And I guess, it, you know, it's hard to know just looking at people's top lines what their response rate bias might be. Yep. And and also, you know, is a surge in enthusiasm in taking surveys actually reflect a real surge or is that an artificial surge? Yeah, look, I think there's a decent amount of evidence that, look, I mean, if only 6% of people are responding to the highest quality polls, you'd have to be pretty lucky if it's a truly random 6%, right? It's probably people who are motivated to take polls, interested in the news and news consumption, interested in politics. And I mean, in some ways, it's a miracle that polls are as good as they are, given that you have this kind of low response rate. I would say it's hard work, Nate. It's not it's a hard work. It's hard Pulsers work. Pollsters deserve yes. more credit. <laughs> it's really hard work. And people forget that, like, if you didn't have a bunch of really smart people working on these polls, then they probably would be total crap. Instead, they're still they're the best instrument we have to measure public opinion. They're a lot better than some reporter's opinion, honestly. They're certainly better than some uninformed, like, pundit's opinion, just speculating based on what his friends at, you know, at his dinner party think. So polls are an important tool in democracy and public service. But yeah, look, the problem is like, you can also, I think, go too far in the other direction where I do not, for example, like polls that that wait by party ID, right? You can say, okay, we know about how many Republicans and Democrats there are. It only changes slowly. And so therefore, 
if you have a really Republican sample, then we can weight that down or vice versa, right? I don't like that because I think that party ID is an attitudinal variable. It's an attitude that changes pretty slowly. Um, you don't usually go from being a Republican to a Democrat overnight, but sometimes you do. And you certainly over the long run might be a little bit more likely to do that. And so, and so I don't know, I, I'm more comfortable, I think, with like the noise in some of these measurements than, than some people might be. But again, it's kind of a victory for like, not a victory for, but like it's a reason to average different methods together. When you have a big news event, then I tend to think sometimes the traditional random digit dial telephone polls that can have selective response issues tend to show too large a shift. And I also think though some of the online more heavily modeled polls that make big assumptions about kind of who might turn out and apply fairly strict priors can sometimes show too little a shift. And so again, like averaging those out often winds up canceling out errors and working decently well. So before we let you go, I want to read through some of the questions that we got from our listeners on Twitter. We said, we've got Nate coming on the show. What should we ask him? Wrong answers only. So, of course, now we're going to actually ask you some of these. So this one comes from at T Sutton 94, who says, what is the Picota projection for Mookie Betts now that he's a Dodger? <laughs> oh, my God. I can't look it up on the screen right now. But like, I'm sure that like they're going to be on paper, famous words. Right. But one of the best teams in baseball history on paper. Right. Watch yeah. them get everyone gets hurt. and They only win 87 games or something. But like, you know, I mean, it almost gets to the point now where you have like an entire team of of all-stars and I don't know if I were a Red Sox fan, I would be pretty freaking annoyed right now. Yeah. I, I got to break the news to my husband. Who's a Red Sox fan last night. And he was like, he was in the middle of doing something. I'm like, um, I have some really bad news for you. I'm so sorry. <laughs> he was very displeased. And they buried it during the state of the union, like good politicians, <laughs> right? Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. We got a question from Brett DiResta. He asked a couple of questions. I'm going to skip to the last one, which is, can you make sure someone buys the Knicks? Oh, yeah. No, I think <laughs> Andrew Yang was talking about getting a group together. So maybe the fact oh. that he finished sixth place in Iowa, a good sixth place, but sixth place, might encourage him to move on to more important endeavors for America, like saving the New York Knicks, potentially. Well, Not if that he, becoming he does win that, but so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is the last question. So I am in Vegas. Uh, that's where I'm recording the show. What is the best bet I can do here? And what is the worst bet I can do here? I mean, I don't know if you can bet on politics in Vegas. I mean, it does look like the odds of... Pretend I want a break from it all. Pretend for just a brief oh, moment want... I want a break from politics and just simply gamble for the love of gambling. I think our NBA model thinks the Philadelphia 76ers are a little bit underpriced Ooh. yeah i don't know that's somewhere you know it's a way to put money down potentially okay i feel qualified i saw uncut gems so i feel now particularly yeah. qualified <laughs> for that i mean the worst bets in vegas i'm trying to figure out like which game is supposed to be worse you know i slots, i play poker when right? i'm out there yeah slots is i don't like i don't get the joy in slots I don't get that it's at all. It's the lights and the noises. That's the benefit. <laughs> at least blackjack is kind of social and you can get free drinks. Yeah. You can get free drinks with slots too, I'm sure. Yes. But learn to play poker. Poker is fun. And you can actually, if you're good, you can actually play gamble for positive expected value in poker. <laughs> Anyone listening to this podcast would probably make a good poker player. Okay. Well, on that note, how can people find you on Twitter? People know how I think know how to find 538, but how can people find you on Twitter? 
So I'm at Nate Silver, N-A-T-E-S-I-L-V-E-R, numbers 538. So I'm pretty active on Twitter. It's often the first way that we're tweeting out when there are updates to our model or, or new polls. It is hard on Twitter to know kind of when to overemphasize or underemphasize a new poll that may or may not change things. But like very active these days in terms of I think Twitter is the best way to get up to the minute info on the caucuses and the primaries that are coming up and that unfold very quickly in real time and the dynamics can change in a hurry. And so so in addition to reading 538, then please do subscribe to my Twitter feed and please do listen to the 538 Politics Podcast as well. Well, Nate, we'll let you get back to it because Iowa Democrats have posted and now I think retracted or corrected. Yeah, great job. Great job, Iowa oh. Democrats. Wow, uh, we've been taping this. I'm going to go learn to play poker. <laughs> results, so. Against any members of the Iowa Democratic Party. <laughs> if they're at the table, you're feeling pretty good. <laughs> okay, well, thanks so much, Nate. We appreciate it. Cool, thank you. You can find us on Twitter at, at the pollsters individually at, at Margie O'Mara and at K. Soltis Anderson or on Facebook as well as at www.thepolsters.com. Thanks. Bye.